0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. What happens when someone says no to Jesus? The Savior is walking the shore, and He calls out, and there you are in the boat, and He says, Come, follow me. What if you don't? What if you say, I'd rather not? And you stay in the boat. You will not immediately die. That was one of the surprises of Eden because God had told the man and the woman, in the day you eat of that fruit, in the day you eat of it, you shall die. They ate of it. And on that day, they did not physically die. If you choose, after hearing the message of Christ, not to put your faith fully in Him, you will probably not immediately die. You will live. The psalmist Asaph, in Psalm 73, even sang of, quote, the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, he said, of those who reject God. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. That might happen if you reject Christ. This is why an atheist will often stand up. I guess not often, but it has happened in history. An atheist will stand up and say, if God is real, I call upon him to strike me now. And when God doesn't strike him dead, he says, see, there is no God. That is not proof of the absence of God. It's a conclusion that we Christians agree with. We believe there is a God, but we agree with the atheists. He does not immediately strike those who deserve it. Praise God for that. Asaph found this a very difficult concept. How could God, if he is in control, allow those who openly reject him to live and even to prosper in this life? Asaph struggled with that until he drew near to God and God gave him an answer. Truly, he said, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. That was the answer. If you say no to Jesus, you may not immediately die. You may actually prosper in this life. But you will do it standing in slippery places. When you're standing on a slippery place, you may at any time fall. You're still standing. You're standing, you're set there, standing. But he says, in a moment, you are swept away. It is kind of like someone who is blindfolded, running as hard and fast as they can, in one direction, and someone's standing off to the side, this would be Christians or your conscience, yelling, stop, there's a cliff, stop. But as you're running, right, left, right, left, each step, you're, you're hitting solid ground. So you distrust the cry. You say, I don't see a cliff. I feel free. I'm running. Right, left, right, left. Now there is a cliff. But if you're blindfolded, you don't know where the cliff is, you don't know when you're going over the edge. Maybe it's 10 feet, maybe it's 100 feet. So you're running madly in that direction. That is what it's like to reject God and to reject his Messiah. You will still find solid ground beneath your feet, but you are blindfolded and at some point you will go right, left, right, and there will be no solid ground. And you go over the edge of the cliff in a moment and there is no coming back. Of course, none of us wants this for ourselves, and we don't want it for anyone else whom we love. And I think that is one of the reasons that God gives us the text that we have today. It is a text all about anticipating judgment. As Asaph Asaph says, you make them fall to ruin. We don't want that. I don't want that. You don't want that. No one wants that. So we need... A passage of warning and that's what we find here in this text a passage of warning because Christ has come we know that Christ has died upon the cross he has resurrected there is free forgiveness there is no need for anyone in this room to go over the edge into a bottomless pit of judgment no one has to do that you don't I don't praise God but it requires stopping Hearing the voice, stopping, turning around, following Jesus as he says, No, 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 not that way. Come follow me. Trust in what I have done and be forgiven for your sins. One of the ways that God presses us toward this great salvation is by warning us of all the dangers that surround us so long as we do not accept Christ's offer of forgiveness. That's what our passage is today, to show you that if you're not truly in Christ... You are running blindfold, and there is a cliff ahead of you. As you remember, in 1 Samuel thus far, we are looking at Eli's household. God has twice told him, Eli is the priest and the judge ruling over Israel. God has twice told him that because of his sacrilege and worship, God will judge his house, kill his two sons. And now that has just happened. We saw how the Philistine enemies came, defeated Israel, killed Eli's two sons, took away the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, which Eli was uniquely responsible to protect. And now that judgment is announced in this text. Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're starting in verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh. The same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he, Eli, said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel is. Has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phineas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. This is actually a very straightforward text. One thing happens. A man runs from the battle, which is near Aphek, west, about 20 miles from Shiloh. A man runs from the the battle where Israel has lost, comes to Shiloh, tells the town, then Eli what has happened. Eli falls and dies. That's what happens in our passage. But notice, our passage could be one verse. God decided it would be seven verses. And from the beginning to the end of this passage, that's the only thing that happens. That news is brought to Eli. That's what the passage is about. But God prolongs it over seven verses. The main thing that stands out from these verses is a sense of anticipation of something bad. And you feel it even as you listen to the text. Every verse almost is meant to delay, delay, delay that horrible news that is coming to Eli and then the horrible thing that happens to Eli. That's why it's seven verses long. We as readers are meant to feel something of this anticipation. It is an anticipation not of something good, but of something terrible. An anticipation of judgment being proclaimed and then Eli himself experiencing judgment by breaking his neck. Eli, blind, starts this passage waiting eagerly, and then he hears the news. Eli has really, in his life, been running as hard as he can, blindfolded toward judgment, and God has sent voices to tell him to stop. The man of God, Samuel, serving there at the temple, and Eli has kept running. He's rejected God's purpose, and he has kept running And every day for 98 years, there's always been solid ground. But in our text today, something changes, and he comes to the edge of the cliff. So what we're going to look at is first, Eli drawing closer and closer to the edge of the cliff, a warning for anyone who's outside of Christ. And then secondly, in our text, the way it ends is he goes over. So let's begin by looking how he draws closer and closer to the precipice of judgment. I said this is a bleak passage, and it is. You saw it. I don't want to suggest there's no relief in the passage at all. Actually, there is a massive, though whispered, mercy to be found in this passage, in two of the verses especially. The first one's verse 15. Now, Eli was 98 years old. And his eyes were set so that he could not see. Eli had been running in the wrong direction a long time. He did not die at 97 or 96 or 95 or 94, year after year. He lived to a ripe old age, judging Israel, serving as a priest. Why did he live so long There are many godly, righteous men who lived far fewer years than that. Why did he live so long? God's mercy. It's the answer. It's God's mercy. God's mercy waits so long for all of us in our sin that Peter actually had to explain to people why Jesus hasn't come back yet. He says in his letter in the New Testament, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. That's a promise of judgment. The Lord is not slow to fulfill that promise as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Eli had 98 years to get things right. We've now had 2,000 between Christ's first coming and the present. If Christ had come, Before we knew Christ, for any of us who know him, just years ago, a decade ago, two decades ago, we'd be lost forever. So Christ hasn't come yet. It's not slowness. It is the mercy of God. How many days and nights of sin has God observed fully, said, I'm not judging yet. I'm not judging yet. Even Eli's blindness reminds us of God's mercy because it was a progressive blindness We saw back in chapter 2, or chapter 3, sorry, verse 2, it said, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. This was years before. Eli progressively lost his sight. Understandable, he was getting up there in years. He loses his sight progressively. This might have been a part of God's judgment since Eli lacked spiritual sight. God may have taken away his physical sight. But notice it was progressive. That didn't happen immediately either. It wasn't that Eli allowed his sons to abuse the sacrifices and God struck him with blindness. No. Progressively in his latter years, he loses his sight. If You see the end of verse 18 again. It says, by the time he dies, he had judged Israel 40 years. I don't know how many of those years. This would mean he had started when he was about 60 years old judging Israel. That's a position of helping lead the nation. So about 40 years, that's about how long someone works before they retire, close to. An entire career's length of him leading the nation. I don't know for how much of that time he was guilty before God of allowing his sons to abuse the sacrifices and fattening himself off of them, but probably for a lot of those years. And God still let him judge Israel 40 years. He lives 100 years. He judges Israel 40 years. So we're looking at a passage that is heavy with judgment. But do bear in mind, when Eli goes over the cliff, he's been running a long, long time. This is what we mean when we speak of God as being slow to anger. Not that he lacks anger or judgment, but he is slow to anger. 98 years here with Eli. Now, in our text, although God is slow to anger and Eli's been running for a long time, finally, Eli draws close to the edge of the cliff. He rounds the cusp of the cliff, if you will. I've already kind of explained this a little bit, but if you just see the intensity, intensification of what they're anticipating in this passage. It's actually well described in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, where we read, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But here's what remains. It's for Eli as well. But a fearful expectation of judgment And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What happens if you say no to God is you are left with a fearful expectation of judgment. The passage we have in front of us is maybe the best single narrative expression of what's said there in Hebrews. Fearful expectation of judgment. That's our whole passage. Verse 12 introduces the runner, just notice the anticipation, the expectation of judgment here as he nears the cliff's edge. Verse 12 introduces this runner, a man of Benjamin, ran from the battle line, came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. That's easy to read, but he actually ran about 20 miles, mostly uphill, coming from the west to the east. And it's on the same day, so I know some of you have run marathons, that's... A little more level ground, but this is 20 miles, less than a marathon, but up a hill. That's what he has done here. His clothes are torn, dirt is on his head. That was a natural expression of grief, of devastation, saying something terrible has happened. Now, we readers know the terrible thing that has happened, but Eli doesn't know yet what has happened. So we read, when he arrived... Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the Ark of God. So Eli is there, probably he's sitting on the west side of the city at the city gate because that's where a messenger will come and he's eagerly waiting. He's blind, but he's listening, eagerly waiting for a messenger because he's responsible for the Ark of the Covenant. That's his whole work surrounds this Ark of the Covenant that represents God's presence. Well, it seems like the messenger comes to the city and runs past Eli. It seems that's what happens. Because it says, and when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. So Eli's waiting in anticipation. The man runs past him. The city is crying out now. Eli is blind, but he's not deaf. He hears the outcry. No doubt at this moment, dread is entering his heart. That's not a good reaction to whatever the message may be he's starting to suspect the worst. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, he says it to himself, it's just a thought, what is this, this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. But notice again, he tells him, but our text draws it out. It's on purpose. Now there's a parenthesis that he was old and that he had lost his sight. An explanatory note for you as the reader, giving you some sense of that delay, of that anticipation as Eli's waiting. You're waiting. He's waiting. You're waiting. Then verse 16, And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. Still not the news. But since Eli's blind, he identifies himself. Verse 18, or sorry, going back, the previous verse here, How did it go, my son? Verse 16. How did it go, my son? Still no news, but we're ready for it now. And then it's four short bursts that get worse and worse and worse. Verse 17. Israel has fled before the Philistines. Eli knows that's bad, although that did happen once before and only 4,000 died. So that's bad, but maybe not as bad as it could be. Second burst. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. 30,000 have died. That's worse, but it still doesn't touch Eli or his house directly. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. That's his two male heirs. His house is cut off. That's bad, but what about the ark? And the ark of God has been captured. And verse 18 explains that Eli didn't fall from his chair until that point. That was the worst news, even greater than the death of his sons. The ark has been captured. Hard for us to comprehend that. This would be somewhat of a similar experience to them. Later, when the Babylonian exile happened and the temple was destroyed, it's hard for us to even understand. That wrecked the Jewish people's whole life, their whole concept of what life means. This is the worst thing that happened in Israel's history until the Babylonian exile, destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. It's probably true. Maybe the Assyrian. But just for the ark to be captured. Eli had been running for so long, with the solid ground beneath him for so long. But on this day, even he can sense it. There's a change in the air. What he hears is different. Something is different on this day. And it's that he's getting close to the edge of the cliff. He began to feel fear. It's a long drawn out moment drawing near to the end. It is exactly the same way with anyone who is not safe in Christ this morning. You have been running. The ground has been beneath your feet. But there is a cliff that you're coming up upon. You will go over the cliff eventually. It will happen. There is a righteous God in heaven. Your sins will be judged. This will happen either at death, and after that comes judgment, says the scriptures, or at the return of Christ, which can happen at any day, and then the gates clink shut and they will not be reopened. One day as you're running, your life may even be prosperous. It might be going well. You might have a good relationship. Things might be going well for you. But one day, the air will change. One day you'll draw near to the edge. As scripture says, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, you have it. Here's the gospel. This is the knowledge of the truth. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving this, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Jesus himself very well described your life situation when he hearkened back to the days of Noah and said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day, this is the day like in our text, until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Running, running, ground, ground, ground. And Jesus says, you'll keep hitting ground until that one step when you don't. And there's no going back. Jesus will rescue you so that you don't fall over the cliff. He's giving you this. This is Him shouting to you. Don't go over the cliff. Turn. Trust in Christ and what He's done. Don't go over the cliff. But that day when you, if you don't hearken to that voice, that day when you step over the cliff, Jesus will not rescue you on that day. When the gate is shut, it will not be opened again. And you do not want to be on the outside of it. Therefore, God in His mercy gives you this passage. Don't be like Eli. You don't have to. The time is short. The day of the Lord is near. That's what Scripture says often. Closer and closer to the edge. Now that brings us with Eli, as he's drawing closer and closer to the edge, that brings us to the point in our passage where he goes over the edge. You see it in verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. You who have followed Eli's life in this text, 1 Samuel, you're aware that this way of dying for Eli, very unpleasant, but this way of dying is not an accident. This was designed specifically by God to be a fitting end because of the sin that Eli was committing. It's like what we read in Psalm 715 where we read of a wicked man who, quote, makes a pit digging it out for someone else to fall in and he falls into the hole that he has made. It's what people today refer to as karma, popularly drawing on Hinduism, but we know it's not karma, it's not random, receiving the due penalty of one's errors. That doesn't always happen immediately, but it always happens eventually. So when Eli falls off his chair and breaks his neck, you can see the text tells you specifically that happened because he was old, but also because he was heavy. And this was a time in history when being heavy was not common. There wasn't an abundance of food. It wasn't a common thing. Actually, in Scripture, we only one other time find someone described as very heavy, and this was Eglon, king of Moab. He was a wicked king, and he also was killed. So we're specifically told that Eli was heavy, and that's the reason his neck broke when he fell off the chair. Why was Eli heavy He was a priest. He was receiving the sacrifices. His portion came from the sacrifices that were offered to God. And you saw in chapter 2 that his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would send a thug with a trident to stick into the pot with the boiling sacrifice and pull out the meat while the fat was still on it, which was forbidden in the law. And they would take it. And if the person resisted, they said, we'll beat you up. We're taking this meat. And they would take the best portion with the fat still on it and eat it. How did Eli get his food? That's how he got his food too. So although Eli kind of said, hey, stop doing that, the fact that he didn't remove his sons meant that he continued to get heavy by eating what belonged to the Lord. That's why God judged him. We saw this when the man of God warned Eli. He said, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel? So God designed this kind of death for Eli to reflect the sin for which he was being punished. It's like what James says in the New Testament. He could have said it to Eli. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Not every person in this life will experience a kind of temporal judgment that exactly matches your essential sins. That's not the point. But there is a principle here that does carry over to our day, and it still stands, which is... God will always judge in exactly the right way, with exactly the right measure. His judgments are perfectly just. They're never exaggerated. Think about this for a moment when we consider the doctrine of hell. We've been talking about running as a metaphor and going over a cliff. What is over the cliff? We're talking about hell. And hell is a difficult doctrine, so difficult it's not a popular topic, even from pulpits, even preaching the Bible where it is in abundance. It's not popular because it's a difficult doctrine. It is painful to even imagine eternal conscious torment for anyone. But it's much more painful to experience it. And that is not an overreaction on God's part that our sins should be punished with eternal conscious torment. If our sins were punished with anything less than that, God would be a bad judge. It'd be less than our sins deserve. God never overpunishes anyone. If you just, if I removed you from the equation and only considered my own history of sins, just mine, that's it, it would be enough fuel to light the fires of hell for eternity. Sins are committed against a holy and a pure God. One of whom Hab- Habakkuk said... You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. None of us can really appreciate how loathsome our sins are. None of us. How heinous our rebellion is. We always are minimizing our own sin. Always. That's what we do. It's how we cope with it. But in God's sight, a single sin could fuel hell forever. And it would be right for God to make a hell for a single sin the judge of all the earth will do right. God's judgment of Eli was made very clear that it's the right judgment. He made himself heavy in a sinful way. His heaviness kills him. But all of God's judgments are exactly right judgments. There's a sense in which, be careful how you think of this, hell is something that God makes. We don't make it. God makes it to punish But just like Eli falls from his chair and it's his own weight that brings him down and kills him, there's a sense in which it's our own weight. It's what we deserve. It's our own weight that carries us down over the edge. It's our sin. So hell's not an over-exaggeration on God's part. It's exactly what our sins deserve. It's his reaction to what we've done. Now, in our text, I feel some pity for this messenger here as we consider Eli going over the edge. Because no one's going to like to hear his message. Now, I just told you that he had run 20 miles uphill. He's exhausted, I'm sure. So he's run uphill. He's just experienced a losing battle. He survived. He sees people die. He runs uphill. The beginning of our passage describes him as a man of Benjamin. I don't think that really matters at all. I don't, I don't think that that's stated for a reason. The rabbis thought that was said because it was Saul. I don't think that's Saul. I think he just happened to be a man of Benjamin. The rest of the text describes this messenger just as the man. And then one time he's described, verse 17, he who brought the news. He doesn't have a name. He's like the man of God in chapter 2. He's not important. Don't look at him. He's not that important. The thing that matters is the message that he's bringing. I mean, notice verse 14. It's surprising after he's run 20 miles uphill. It says, the man hurried... And came and told Eli, it's bad news. It will break the heart of everyone who hears it. It will break the neck of one person who hears it. Why is he hurrying to bring this news to the city just so they can cry out? Because the Philistines are close behind. See, the messenger is running fast and is bringing this news, bad news though it is, of judgment. Because if he tells this to Shiloh, Shiloh, the people living there, have the opportunity to get up and go before the Philistines come and destroy their city, which we know from later in the Old Testament, that's what happened. Shiloh was destroyed in judgment probably shortly after this. The messenger is eager to bring terrible news, not because he delights in terrible news, but because he's a good messenger and it gives an opportunity to those who would otherwise be destroyed. You can get up and run away now. And this is the reason that Jesus came to earth with the best good news and also the worst bad news. It's why when you open your Bible, there's so much judgment. So much that many modern people are upset with the Bible. It's harsh, especially the Old Testament. Look at this passage. But it's like the messenger. This moment is like the messenger running into Shiloh, hurrying though he's exhausted. I don't love to preach on judgment. It's not a delight I have. But it gives us all the opportunity to know the danger we are in. It's not Philistines who are coming. It is an eternal hell. For anyone who does not place their faith fully in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sins, who goes on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, you are running to the edge of a cliff. It's bad news so that you can be saved. Which is exactly why the messenger ran 20 miles uphill and hurried to tell Eli. It's the same reason we are here this morning. This passage is the messenger crying out, Stop! What are you doing? Stop! There's a cliff. Take off your blindfold. Turn around. And you, of course, have the option. You can leave the blindfold on and run. It will feel more free. You don't have to do what anybody says. You just run. That's what you want to do? Just run. Do what you want to do and run. And it may go really, really well for you. And you will find solid ground beneath your feet for maybe a long time, and then you won't. So God gives you this passage to say, do you want to fall like Eli fell? We don't. All of us have really a thousand reasons to turn to Christ and heed his call. He died on a cross for us. Nobody loves us that much. The love in his eyes, the security to be found in his arms, the kindness the mercy, the strength for every day. So we have so many reasons to trust in Christ. But this is one reason among the others, that without Christ, we will go over the edge of the cliff. Right, left, right, no solid ground. Therefore, as Hebrews says in the New Testament, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then that passage concludes, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The call of this passage is that you would run toward Christ. The cliff is there. And Christ is there, and you will run one of those two directions. And God, through this passage, the Spirit Himself in mercy cries out to you, Stop running that way. Run this way. And you will find forgiveness, mercy, and life.